Welcome to the Old Time Radio Westerns. I'm your host, Andrew Rines, and this episode is brought to you by Amazon.com. If you plan doing any online shopping, first go to otrwesterns.com slash Amazon to start your shopping experience today. Well, today's episode is going to be The Cavalcade of America. Original air date is November 35, and the title is Woman's Emancipation. Very important. Again, this is a stretch to the Western's genre, but I do believe anything that took place before current time, really, in the 1800s, that was Western's, if you really want to think about it. You know, horse-drawn carriages and all that. Only in the last 100-plus years did we actually evolve to where we're at now. So, hope you guys have been enjoying that. Don't forget, go to the Lone Ranger's um, feed and check out the episode called Fool's Gold. It's very important. It's got some information in the intro. Hope you guys have been enjoying the series, and let's get into it. The Cavalcade of America. unanimously adopted at the recent convention of the National Council of Women reads as follows, quote, Be it resolved that a letter of thanks be sent to DuPont for sponsoring the excellent educational series called The Cavalcade of America, thus providing the whole family with splendid entertainment. End of quotation. DuPont appreciates this compliment from such a distinguished organization, and needless to say, such a commendation is particularly timely right now during National Education Week. It is the purpose of this series to show the forward march of traditional American spirit in a series of true stories. And just as the history of the nation shows how American men and women overcame trials and hardships and so found new horizons, so the history of chemistry shows how the research chemists have constantly contributed to a fuller, richer, and freer life for everyone. This is the ideal expressed by DuPont in the phrase, better things for better living through chemistry. This evening, we welcome as our guest a distinguished star of the stage, Miss Faye Bainter, who will be heard in each of three episodes dealing with women's emancipation. Our cavalcade orchestra rings up the curtain with an excerpt from the first movement of the Unfinished Symphony of Schubert. Thank you. 
When the signers of the Declaration of Independence founded our American Republic with the statement that all men are created equal, they did not seem to include women. American women, especially married women, were in a class legally with slaves, imbeciles, and felons. A scene such as which took place about 30 years before the Civil War can hardly be realized today. We're in Judge Daniel Cady's office, which joined his home in Johnstown, New York. The part of Elizabeth Cady is played by Miss Faye Bainter. It is the year 1830, a winter evening. Mrs. Dean has stopped in to see Judge Cady. Do forgive me for disturbing you, Judge Cady, but I saw a light in your office window, and I, I was so upset. Don't apologize, Mrs. Dean. A good lawyer is a public servant, always ready to help his friends. You and my husband were always such good friends that... Well, I felt I could come to you for advice. Of course, Mrs. Dean. Oh, hello, Elizabeth. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were busy. You know my daughter, I think, Mrs. Dean. How do you do, Mrs. Dean? Oh, bless you, my dear. You're quite a young lady. Uh, Mrs. Dean, uh, do you know that during the last semester at school, Elizabeth won the prize for being the best Greek scholar in the class? Why, Elizabeth, it doesn't seem quite to... Quite delicate. I heard Father wishing I'd been born a boy. And I wanted to show him that I was just as good as a boy. She intends to make me pay for that one inadvertent remark. Well, I will, too, Father. You'll see. <laughs> All right, Elizabeth. And now, I'll run along. Mrs. Dean wants to talk something over with me. Oh, that's a child's stage, Judge. Perhaps if she is, but I have to tell you, she won't wish she were a boy. Well, I, I don't think I understand you, Mrs. Dean. It's my son, Judge. My only son. Oh, surely you have no cause to complain of your son. Fine young man, Mrs. Dean, if I'm any judge. And a dutiful son. Yes, a fine young man. But there's truth in the old saying, a man is a son till he gets him a wife, but a daughter's a daughter the whole of her life. But what has this to do with the... You know, when my father died, all his estate came to me and threw me to my husband. Of course, Mrs. Dean. That is the law. A married woman can have no property in her own right. And then, when my husband died, he left the money to our son. And all that money that was mine now belongs to him. Quite properly. And I'm dependent on his generosity. It's his duty to take care of you and see that you have a proper home. Yes. But his wife's idea and my ideas on what is a proper home are very different. But she has no legal right to... No legal right, perhaps. But she rules my son's home. Where I was once the mistress, I'm now a poor relation. I'm an object of charity. My dear lady, surely you realize that nothing can be done about it. You mean there is no legal step I can take? No way that I can recover part of what was once mine? None, Mrs. Dean. That's the law. But I'm, I'm sure he's a kind, generous son. He was, Judge, until he married this woman. I've tried to treat her as a daughter. I've tried to be tactful and helpful. But this very morning I heard him telling me I heard her telling him that if I complained anymore, he hoped that he would send me to an institution. An institution, Judge Tate. Do you understand what that means? I can't stand it. My dear lady, I'm deeply sorry for you, but there's absolutely nothing that I can do about it except speak to your son and ask him to be more generous. Generous? With her own money? Elizabeth, my child, please. It's an outrage, Father. It isn't fair. Why can't a wife own property? Why must there be such laws in these books? Hey, you must forgive my daughter, Mrs. Dean. I apologize for her maidenly outburst. She needs no apology, Judge. 
I only wish that I had her youth and spirit. Perhaps someday there will be some woman who will lead her sisters out of the wilderness of man-made law. I won't trouble you any longer. Goodbye. Oh, oh, I beg your pardon, sir. Oh, that's quite all right. Uh, did I hurt you? I'm so sorry. No, no, not at all. Well, come in, Henry. You know my eldest daughter's brother-in-law, Henry Byard. Well, yes. How do you do, Mr. Byard? How do you do, Mrs. Dean? I'm happy to see you. Thank you, sir. And thank you for listening to me, Judge Sadie. God bless you, Elizabeth. Goodbye. Goodbye. Well, Mrs. Dean seems excited. Any trouble? A personal matter. An argument with a son. It's more than a personal matter. It's more than just an argument. It's a question between all men and all women. Oh. Is Elizabeth getting herself upset again about the rights of the fair sex? Why aren't girls as good as boys? Why can't we own things ourselves? Father, do you mean to say that this necklace and these bracelets you gave me for Christmas aren't really mine? Well, uh, uh, legally... Legally, they... my dear, they belong to your father. And if, well, let's say for the sake of argument, you should later become my wife. Those pretty ornaments would be mine. You couldn't even wear them without my permission. I could sell them, give them away. I could even change them for a box of cigars, and you could watch them evaporate and smoke. It isn't fair. It's not fair. It's my, my book. What I'm are you doing? I'm going to tear the wretched laws out of your book. But my child... No, tearing them out of books will do no good, Elizabeth. You must take them out of the legal code. You must tear them out of the hearts and brains of the men who wrote them and believe in them. Men make the laws, and only men can change them. And they call this a free country. Oh, why can't I do something? Why can't I do something? On Friday, May 11th, 1840, refusing to say the word obey... Elizabeth Cady was married to Henry B. Stanton, prominent as an abolitionist. Her honeymoon was spent in England, where the bride and bridegroom were delegates to the World's Anti-Slavery Convention. We find them in Freemasons Hall, London, June 12, 1840, just as a delegation from the United States is presenting its credentials. We will hear from the delegation representing the United States of America. Mr. Chairman, I present the credentials for our delegation. The Honorable William Lloyd Garrison. The Honorable Henry Brewster Stanton. Mrs. Lucretia Moss. Uh, pardon me, sir, but uh, what was that uh, last name? Mrs. Lucretia Moss. Uh, the delegation from the United States of America is out of order. We have no authority to permit the seating of women as delegates to this convention. Henry, did you hear that? They're refusing to seat our American women delegates. Yes, dear, I heard. We'll see what can be done. Oh, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman. Uh, the chair recognizes the Reverend C.B. Stout. Mr. Chairman, it seems to me preeminently unfitting that women should be permitted to sit as delegates to this great convention. When in his great judgment God created woman from the rib of man, he did not intend her as man's equal, but subject to his will and command. Mr. Chairman, the chair recognizes Mr. George Bradburn of the United States. If the clerical gentleman who has just spoken can prove to me that the Bible teaches the entire subjection of one half of the race to the other, oh, I think oh, that Mr. Chairman, in answer to the blasphemy of the previous speaker, 
May I remind him that St. Paul says in the 11th chapter of the first Corinthians, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And again in the 6th chapter of Ephesians, wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands, for the husband is the head of the wife. The chair recognizes Mr. Henry D. Stanton. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, in our National Anti-Slavery Society, women are accustomed to speak and vote in all its conventions. Their part in this great struggle is fully as active as that of the men. In the United Mr. States... Do you let the women vote in your country? Not yet. But we hope that the time will come. Finally, the English delegates, supported by the English clergy, had their way, and all women were rejected as delegates to the convention. Elizabeth found herself seated in the audience beside another disappointed member of the American delegation, Patricia Mott. Mrs. Stanton, I, I feel so humiliated sitting here like this, for all the world like a naughty child. I feel more contempt and disgust than chagrin, Mrs. Mott. What will they say in America? It's Mr. Garrison they're applauding. I wish he'd been here yesterday. He'd have been the bigots of his oratory. Mr. Sherman, the chair recognizes the American delegate, Mr. William Lloyd Garrison. Mr. Garrison is the most eloquent speaker I've ever heard. Yes, they say everyone is looking forward to hearing his address. Uh, Mr. Chairman, on arriving here today, I learned that our women... The very women who have fought side by side with us in all this great conflict for freedom have been excluded from places on the floor. Uh, yes, Mr. Garrison, by vote of the delegates. I came 3,000 miles to speak on the subject nearest my heart. But after battling for so many years for the liberation of African slaves, I can take no part in a convention that strikes down the most sacred rights of all women. Mr. Garrison is no less than tyranny. We haven't the privileges of the most ignorant and degraded men. We haven't used the right to the wages we earn. We're denied equality and education. In fact, we're civilly dead. Man has usurped the prerogatives of Jehovah himself. When I return home, I intend to devote my life to the liberation of women so the generations to come won't be humiliated as we've been today. It means work, I know. It means that we'll be sneered at and insulted. We ourselves may never see the victory, but at least we can show the way to the women of America. Elizabeth Cady Stanton's words turned out to be prophetic. They were the beginning of the reform which was to be known as women's rights. In 1848, a small convention was held in Seneca Falls, New York. It was ridiculed by the public and rebuked by the press. However, it was successful enough to result in the first national convention just two years later. The American cavalcade moved onward. But it was some time before women's rights societies made much headway with the law of the land. Suffrage became the goal. Western pioneers saw their women struggle beside them against the wilderness. 
1869, Wyoming Territory granted the vote to women. This stirred the soul of Susan B. Anthony, often called the Napoleon of women's rights. And in the year 1871, we find Susan, played by Faye Bainter, entering the headquarters of the Board of Registry in Rochester, New York, with a group of co-workers. Well, ladies, what can I do for you? We're here to register. Hey, what's that? Register. To register? We can't vote unless we register, can we? Uh, but ladies, you, you can't vote at all. The law says... We know the law. The 14th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States says that all persons born or naturalized in the United States are citizens of the United States, and that no state may make a law which shall abridge their privileges or deny equal protection of the law. But, madam, you are a woman. Since when was a woman not a citizen? Either you will register, my friends, or I'll bring suit against you. Oh, let them register. We don't have to let them vote. If we register, we will vote. Madam, I warn you, if you vote, you will be arrested. Susan B. Anthony did register and vote. She was arrested and fined $100. She refused to pay the fine, and President Grant pardoned her. Susan B. Anthony kept working to keep the suffrage question before Congress until her brave spirit passed on in 1906. The American cavalcade moved onward to the year 1913. That was the year when the whole country was humming the beautiful waltzes from the operetta Shari.
On March 3rd, 1913, the day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration, a great parade was held in the city of Washington. Many politicians, afraid of women's suffrage, tried to belittle the ever-growing storm. Two of them look out of a window on Pennsylvania Avenue as the parade passes. They certainly can march. I'm surprised it's only good-looking young girls. They just want to show off. Say, that crowd's getting nasty. Look at that. Men in the crowd throw a cigar butt in that woman's face. After all, they are women. They want to vote like men. They must expect to be treated like men. Those fellows on the curb are men. They're rowdies and hoodlums. The women are asking for it. Oh, just look at them. Thousands of them. Marching by. All looking ahead. Not even hearing the tears of the I've got to admit I admire them. Looks as if they really mean it this time. Through the day they marched and into the night, dressed in white, women of all descriptions bravely bore their banners before a partisan crowd. Five years later, on December 2nd, 1918, President Wilson, in addressing Congress, said, The least tribute we can pay women is to make them the equals of men in political rights, as they have proved themselves their equals in every field of practical work they have entered, whether for themselves or their country. In May 1918, the 19th Amendment was passed by the House, and in June by the Senate. But passage was one thing, ratification by 36 states was another. The legislatures of 35 states finally ratified. All eyes are turned toward Tennessee, the state that the suffragists hope will be the one to give them their long-delayed victory. The Tennessee Senate passes the bill 25 to 4. Then it comes to the House. The galleries are filled. In the front row sit two anti, a husband and his wife, and beside them, a young woman, played by Faye Bainter, who is evidently a supporter of the suffrage cause. Hey, you see, Bessie, it won't pass. Our state wants to stick our women. We don't want them in politics. Don't want to drag them through the mire. You're right, dear. Absolutely right. Perhaps when women get into politics, they'll help drag it out of the mire. Oh, I beg your pardon, ma'am. I'm sorry, but I couldn't resist replying to your remarkable reason for keeping us from voting. Yes. You really believe what you said? Surely you trust your wife to vote. Oh, I don't want to vote. I agree with my husband that a woman's proper place is the home. But just because yes. you don't believe in it, why should other women it's be deprived quiet, quiet, of what quiet, they quiet. They're announcing the vote. The vote stands 49 for the amendment and 47 against. 49 to 47. Yes. We won. Oh. One moment, please. I cannot declare this a passing vote. There are only 96 members out of 99 present. The 49 eyes constitute a majority of those present but not the majority of the entire membership of the House. It's a trick. <laughs> it's clever. Walker's no fool. There'll be a move to reconsider until he gets uh, full attendance. Mr. Speaker! Mr. Speaker! The chair recognizes the member from Decatur. I voted against the bill, but in order to allow a move to reconsider, I will change my vote. <laughs> I told you. They'll give them time to round up the three absent members, and they're all against the, uh, the amendment. When they vote, it'll stand 50 against to 49 in favor. Mr. Speaker, 
Chair recognizes the member from Crockett County. Quiet, please, Mr. Speaker. Do I understand that the member from Decatur changes his vote? You do. For purposes of reconsidering the motion until tomorrow. Now I will entertain a motion to adjourn. One moment, Mr. Speaker. Point of order. I still have the floor. Since he is reconsidered, that makes the vote stand 50 ayes and 46 noes. A clear majority of the entire house. 50 out of 99. My dear lady, that we won. Your speaker outsmarted himself. The amendment is ratified. Next election, women will vote. Women are citizens of the United States at last. And so, after years of struggle, women at last were given the vote. Today, we find women successfully competing with men in every walk of human endeavor. Women challenges man in courage, skill, talent, and craftsmanship. Yes, no advantage, except no compromise. He stands on the heights at last, after a long and weary climb, welcomed as an equal, admitted to her place in the cavalcade of America. Think what an important part women play in the life of our nation. Not only politically, but economically. They are the purchasing agents of America's homes, and their ideas make business history. Have you ever heard anyone use the expression, born to the purple? There's a story in that phrase, born to the purple. A story that has a lot to do with feminine gowns and frills. Way back in Roman times, the Phoenicians were renowned for their skill in dyeing the robes of royalty. They used a color called Tyrian purple, which was obtained from shellfish found in the Tyrian Sea. It was so costly that only royalty could afford clothing of this beautiful color, and hence the expression, born to the purple, denoting high birth. America got its dyes from foreign sources until the World War created a shortage, and our nation began to develop its own dye industry. This development represents one of the great achievements of American chemistry. Today, America makes enough dyes for practically all its domestic needs, even exporting large quantities. And so you see, the story of American dyes also is a story of emancipation. Our industries are now completely free from dependence on foreign supplies. Americans can be proud, too, of the high quality of home-produced dyes. Among the most recent developments is the class known as VAT dyes. These are the fastest colors known to science. And the women of America know how important it is to have fabrics that retain their original colors, in spite of repeated washings and prolonged exposure to sunlight. DuPont has played an important part in this building of the American dye industry, and research chemists in DuPont laboratories are still seeking further improvements in dyes, just as they're working in many other fields of research to provide better things for better living through chemistry. On tonight's program, you've heard Faye Bainter, famous stage star in the leading role. Tune in again next Wednesday when DuPont again presents The Cavalcade of America. 
This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed this special episode of otrwesterns.com. Check out the show notes site, otrwesterns.com. Call, leave me a voicemail, 707-986-8739. Send me an email, podcast at otrwesterns.com. We're on Twitter, at otrwesterns. Also on Facebook, facebook.com slash otrwesterns. And please rate us on iTunes. Just search otrwesterns. We have multiple podcasts, so if you subscribe to this specific feed, then please do leave feedback on that one. Rate us high so we can go ahead and get nominated and all that other good stuff. This podcast is copyright 2011 under the attribution non-commercial share like copyright. For more information, go to otrwesterns.com slash copyright. That's it. Have a great day. Again, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed.